0: Views expressed in the Heritage Science podcast are the opinions of individuals and do not represent SEHER or any of its partner institutions. Hello and welcome to episode five of the Heritage Science podcast. The show brought to you by students of SEHER, the Centre for Doctoral Training in Science and Engineering in Arts, Heritage and Archaeology. I'm Hayley Simon, and today we'll be discussing 3D heritage with Dr. Mona Hess from UCL Engineering's 3D Impact Group. She researches the use of 3D imaging and other technologies in heritage environments. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Mona, was there a particular project or piece of work that first got you interested in using 3D technology?
1: My very first project ever was back in Germany. It was actually a medieval wall painting that needed conservation. And 3D optical imaging techniques were used to produce evidence if over a year of time the wall painting moved or changed. So I was very lucky that in that Department of Conservation Science, the professor was very visionary and had acquired a 3D structured light scanner. And we were actually able to produce evidence that any little chips down to half a millimetre or a little less could be detected as having changed and having fallen off and that sort of thing. So that was really eye-opening in being able to use imaging for
0: conservation. How often would you have to take those pictures? Every month. Every month. Yes. And millimetre change, that's so tiny. Yes, it's yeah, that's very amazing. tiny. Was there a favourite project that you've worked on? A favorite project was my collaboration with the British
1: Museum for the Solomon Islands War Canoe and it is a very big boat that has been at display in the British Museum until the 70s and then they changed the exhibition and they had to take out this specific war canoe from the Solomon Islands and put it into storage. It then vanished from the public eye, it went into a storehouse in northeast London and Prow and Stern were cut off. So it wasn't any more visible or accessible, lots of things in the same storage room made it entirely unaccessible for anyone to see or to understand. And then a project grant was given by the Research Council of Norway to the University of Bergen, in Norway and together with the Institute of Anthropology here and the eCurator project that I was on then, we were able together with the British Museum Oceania Department to go into the storage and 3D scan and photograph the object. Half of the storage room was being taken out by the heavy lifting crew and I didn't know what I was doing when I said I need about two meters around and they really needed to empty all the stores and we spent two weeks in the storage. We saw lots of different things around us. I got to understand the meaning of the canoe as well as just imaging it because interviews were held, interpretations were done. I imaged bits and pieces, prow and stern, and then later I put them back together virtually and it was delivered on the Solomon Islands in field work. I wasn't there but Uh, the University of Bergen crew went there, introduced the 3D model and people understood the making and the manufacture of this type of canoe and they connected it with their almost ancestral knowledge
0: of the manufacture of the materials of the woods. Were you able to learn anything more about those manufacturing methods through your images?
1: We were able to dimension various beams inside the canoe. They were in particular interested in the inside of the boat because in their traditional iconographic representations of the boat you would only see it from the side and from outside with the prow facing to the left. So they only saw like the facade of the boat if you want from outside. So they were quite interested in the inside construction. So with 3D imaging we were also able to just
0: isolate the inside and for them to play with it. So when we talk about 3D technology, what really is the difference between taking a two-dimensional image and a three-dimensional image?
1: The two-dimensional image is a very good representation of the truth. It is able to capture the correct color. So if you color calibrate your screen, if you color calibrate the camera, it can get very close to our perception of the eye. And increasingly, it can become very well resolved. You can get very close to the object. But it's a two-dimensional representation to understand an object in the round, to understand, for example, a description in the back. You need to turn it around. And I think 3D images allow something of a more intuitive understanding of how the object is made up in the round so you can turn it on the screen and you can understand it maybe a bit better than a photograph
0: there's also this element of bringing these objects to people that might not be able to go and visit them like with the Solomon Island Mm -hmm. example and taking it to a different audience as well Do you take that into consideration when you're making the model about who the audience is going to be? Do you do a different aspect to your computerized image depending on whether you're dealing with someone who would want to see the inside of the boat or someone more concerned with markings on the outside? That's a very important point. You need to be clear on what you want from
1: a 3D image, actually, before you start the project, because it might trigger different technical decisions. You can, yes, then if you have a very high resolution image, very heavy file size, you can then customize it to serve for different purposes. So if I wanted to serve an audience who is looking at collections online, who needed to see an image that is colored and can be turned around and maybe downloaded to be 3D printed off. Then I would prepare a file that has medium to low file size, can be easily viewed with any type of internet connection and might carry some additional interpretation and links to a museum database, for example. If I wanted to serve a target audience of researchers and conservators who were interested in a particular inscription or in a surface manufacturer, I would give them a much higher resolved model. But it would be useful if it was specified before the project starts. (laughs) Is that normally the case? It is difficult. There is a sort of a moderation and sometimes you have to probe any of your, I would attempt to say, clients of your researchers with questions to kind of gauge what they really want in the end, what it is that they need. It's not so easy. So in my research I have proposed a structure and a a series of questions that people need to answer before they commission a 3D image.
0: And how long do these scans take to collect? That is very different for
1: every object. I would say if it is a tabletop object, after you have done all your setup, or for example your cameras, your lighting, or your scanning system, might be as little as half an hour, or as much as with the British Museum, where we did it very detailed, two weeks. And usually the recording itself is the least time. The relation of recording something, photographing something, and to then process it to a final product might be 1 to 3, but can be 1 to 10. So you might spend quite a lot of time in producing your final outputs. And yes, it needs to be taken into account when planning a project.
0: And kind of connect to that, when we came into the studio today, you were looking at some of the tripods here that we've got set up. Do you take all of your equipment there, some really hefty cameras and tripods? How do you negotiate that with these big rooms, as you were saying, at the British Museum? you had to clear all the storage space?
1: So one of the essential questions on my list is, can the object move? If it's a tabletop object, then you would prefer, for example, to take it in a climate controlled room, for example, like we have in the Chadwick building up here at UCL, where we can actually control relative humidity and temperature, and we have a fixed installed scanner that has a known way of performing and so you bring the object to the scanner if you can. If that isn't possible there are various ways around it. There are systems that are portable, mobile, so some of them are easier like a camera bag is easy to transport and then there are others that are like a people van full of stuff that you have to bring (laughs) in a museum and you have there you have to then tell them you know reserve a room, close the gallery so that works and you need to adapt it for every single object that you might want to do. I find that increasingly photogrammetry or structure for motion so that's like putting together images from multiple viewpoints around an object are the technique of choice for creating 3D images and there I have just started a research project that creates a mobile kit where you can pack everything into one big long trolley and you bring your own little photo studio to the museum. The idea is of course that in the long run lots of museums will consider taking these 3D images and having access to this equipment. And they might already have it if there is a photography department. There might already be a studio where you can just go there and borrow their lights, borrow their tripods in situ and then do the recording or teach people how to record things. But yes, certainly a nice, cool temperature and humidity controlled room with solid tripods and solid floor, no vibration, would be ideal for all sorts of 3D imaging, scanners, cameras must yes. be a
0: nightmare working in london there where you've got the underground and you're yes. shaking everything <laughs> yes You're starting to see these 3D models coming into museum displays as well. I mean, certainly at the British Museum, which I know we've mentioned quite a lot today, they've got a couple of these where they've incorporated these 3D scans and these interactive displays into their exhibitions. Are you seeing requests for this increasing as well?
1: Yes, very much so. I find it gives you more information about the object itself. So interactive displays also just on touch screens in front of an object are very helpful, I think. And people are increasingly also using other techniques like virtual reality augmented reality but these are more on mobile devices Um, I might don't think there are fixed installations in museums quite yet, additional to any sort of almost now regular touch screens, I think we will have much more of this coming up. There is a lot of movement recently in virtual reality headsets being brought out on the market from different commercial companies. And there's also the cheap version, just the cardboard, you know, where you have your phone and you put your phone into the cardboard and it works pretty well. So it will just enrich the experience if you can have more information than what you just see in the gallery. Lots of these things might be in storage, so there might be objects that complement the collection that you see in the glass case in front of you. And yeah, I'd like to see the experiments going on and hopefully be involved in some of these types of projects
0: Yeah, it'd be amazing if you have a display and then you've got augmented reality where you can then put yourself in the position where that object would have been maybe back in time as well. And do you do a lot of research looking at how to recreate these scenes with the objects themselves in this augmented reality?
1: I would say that's going beyond my expertise. (laughs) That is more something like a, well, graphic designer, almost a 3D developer would do. It is entirely possible that if you take an object and send it on loan, that you, um, let's imagine it is some altar piece in a church that you go in and record the surrounding of the church in a panoramic image and then maybe this golden cross is traveling to an exhibition and you can just virtually recreate what you already have in the real world so I'm interested in capturing the real world I'm less involved with creating a virtual world that doesn't exist yet. But it is entirely possible, and I mean just regular gaming does a very good job already in designing 3D worlds that are new to us, that you can immerse yourself. And I think we're not very far in maybe saying, okay, this object is medieval, how would it have looked in the medieval church that is lit only by candles and where the glass wasn't transparent, and and maybe it was a day where the sun was shining through the coloured stained glass windows. That's entirely possible. But I'm very much involved with capturing the real world Mm.
0: so you mentioned that when you're taking these images very controlled conditions are ideal Mm -hmm. so when you're trying to recreate different lighting conditions how do you go about doing that like virtual lighting um, positions There are softwares
1: around where you can play with lighting as if it was a real studio. So you can set ambient lighting, spotlights in different colors from different directions. You can set the surface specularity of the object. That is something that is very difficult to record. So surface sheen or surface gloss on an object will reflect more or less the light of the surrounding. So it gives a different material impression of the surface. So What is the material? Is it polished glass or a mirror or is it a dull brick-like or clay-like surface. And you can simulate all of this in graphic software, and 3D graphics. So this is computer graphics,
0: really. So are there some objects that go better to this sort of application than others?
1: I'm glad you asked this.
0: <laughs> yes, there are
1: some objects that are very difficult to image. I'm tempted to say a nightmare to image. So anything transparent, anything very shiny, anything completely black, anything that is moving, th- these four categories are difficult, if it's in combinations even more difficult. That has to do with properties of the optical imaging, the light rays bouncing off the object or going through the object. This is really sort of the physics of the optical imaging what do you get back into your sensor can it be recorded. Black is swallowing lots of the light so you don't get for example sensor signal that's coming back into your optics or very little. So that is the same for laser scanning as for photography so you need to be very clever on how you do the lighting and how you Do your white balance on this, because otherwise you will not get any information in terms of surface point cloud or mesh or whatever you record. Other things that are difficult, maybe if you three D image buildings, you need to have some device of getting up there. But you can use a terrestrial laser scanner that has a reach of 100 meters. But you might use a drone to get the roof of a church, for example. So the line of sight is important to three D imaging. So also complex geometry with undercuts is very difficult if you don't see it you can't image it it makes sense yes So that's things that are hard to image. What's Mm -hmm. very good to image? Very good to image plaster casts. Things that are solid forms and are not equally in geometry all the way around. I mean, for example, a sphere is difficult to image. If the sphere has, I don't know, some protruding elements, that's better because then it's better to align back and front, for example. Easy to image are also surfaces that have a lot of geometry, so features we call them, or a lot of different colors on them that also works very well for image processing. If you do photogrammetry structure for motion, if there's kind of a print on it or if it's a different color painted, that works very well. Everything that you can step around in a circle and above, for example, so that excludes some things that are on the wall because you can't see the back. I think that's Mm -hmm. what comes to mind right now.
0: When you were talking about going to these big buildings and using drones to scan them, is there a scale? So what's the smallest thing you can image and what's the biggest thing you can image?
1: You know that they are imaging Mars, right? So they are sending out satellites that have cameras attached. So planets, you can image planets from above. So aerial imaging will produce digital terrain models. So that's big. Small, you can use photogrammetry and stereo photogrammetry. So looking through two cameras to give you a double view in microscopes. That's very small. So you can go down even nanometers and scanning electron microscopy. That's another kind of technology. But they're all also using principles of imaging that are the same as if I'm doing optical surface imaging of an object that's on the tabletop.
0: So when you're doing it for photogrammetry, your camera goes round the object. So how do you do that in a microscope? Does the sample move or do you again move the camera? So there are
1: different ways. So either you already have two cameras inbuilt into the microscope. The sample can move. There are also ways of doing a movement in the z-axis, so up and down. And to do focus stacking, that will give you a nice image, but you can do also 3D reconstructions from it. So the sample will move, yes. And I need to stress that this is optical surface imagery, so this is not x-ray, so we're not looking through through the object. We might use different wavelengths to look at the object, so infrared or UV can be used to look at the object. So using infrared to produce 3D models from that, that's actually a research area. But we are really not looking into something that might be enclosed inside a cast, so we're really looking at the surface.
0: Could there be a future for taking these optical techniques and then moving them to other wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum? That would be very good, yes.
1: At the moment, an example is computer tomography where they actually use X-ray to get slices of the objects and then they just extract the outside. New research areas, I need to say I'm not entirely sure But using different wavelengths is certainly a way to go, different laser lights, different wavelengths for imaging.
0: Thinking back to putting this in a heritage environment, what are some considerations you need to make from the heritage side of the object before you image it? What considerations need to be made about the historical aspect or the artistic aspect of an object?
1: Other than thinking about how can the object be accessed and can it travel, there are other considerations such as is it an organic object that will react to any strong light? That might be a worry if you expose it to flashlight or if you expose it to a strong laser beam. I don't think that any damage was done to imaging these objects, but I know that integrity of pigments and organic materials must be considered
0: when you do the imaging. So you've briefly touched upon your process that you get people to fill out this document and there's a lot of questions before you scan something. So how do you go about deciding what to scan?
1: Very often people are approaching me from the outside so I get a random phone call really. That They're looking 3D London and they find the 3D Impact Research Group and they get in touch and they have objects that they need to quickly image. Very often, the first thing I ask is can you send me a picture and I can give you an educated guess if this is feasible or not. And if it looks as if it's feasible, I will send out this questionnaire that will detail more the questions about, you know, accessibility, timeline, and of course budget. As I said, you know, you have a day of imaging and 10 days of processing at least, and must be considered if people have this the central budget for it. And if it looks promising, I will also try to see if it's a subject for research. So I'm always very interested to then as output to be able to present this to a wider audience. So write a paper about it, present it in a conference, get feedback from other people who do similar projects and essentially increase the knowledge about 3D imaging. If people really want a 3D image quickly to do something, you know, they can also call a service. There are more and more services around that you could call. But I have been interesting requests about imaging a crown replica with gemstones for the purpose of making it downloadable for people to play with it, to 3D print it. And this is a request I had to pass on because in that particular time I had no capacity to solve this and somebody else had a scanner that could solve the problem and could go there. You actually also share things that are coming in if you know your partners or your friends have other scanners.
0: So this yeah. is kind of where the technology is moving to couple it with 3D scanning so people can have a replica of these objects. Yes, I find this a very interesting area that 3D printing can
1: give you the geometry, but not only the geometry, it could also give you the material impression. For example, a plaster cast, if you print it in gypsum, it's pretty close to the weight and the feel of the plaster cast. There's a level of detail that is lost in the 3D printing from the digital image to the 3D printing. But the surface might be approximately the same, might have approximately the same weight. The 3D printed object might, for example, travel alone in the place of an object that cannot leave a museum. And this has been, in fact, done. You might be able to hand out scaled objects to students, for example for them to describe the object, to, to see the surface of the object, to understand it in the round, so you can actually use these for teaching. In terms of access, this is really revolutionising. And the materials are metal as well, increasingly very expensive, but also very cheap plastic, so you can uh, create things for like a pound.
0: I could definitely see this becoming an interesting tool say if you're teaching conservation and how to piece something that's in hundreds of pieces and put it back into a 3D object. And you could use that as a teaching tool, 3D scan them and then print them and then use that in conservation studies. Yeah, you could, absolutely. For example, the Azizi frescoes, when they fell
1: down in many different pieces, I mean, one of the question was, can you scan it and can you take the outside geometry and do a proposed fitting of these fragments together? But yes, you can virtually reconstruct things that are lost, you can send them over, you can get your researcher colleagues input from Australia by just quickly uploading it on the web and he looks at it or she looks at it and, you know, gives you a comment, that's not a likely hypothesis, this needs to be different. Okay or let's not use it like this. And you can, for example, also create custom-made mounts. So you could discuss any different approaches to how you want to conserve it, how you want to support it, and what your mount would look like. So yeah, that's all very, very interesting. And it connects digital manufacturing with the 3D imaging world
0: of a slightly different angle on that you see a lot of these reconstructions of when you've got a skull and people take the skull and they'll scan the skull and then reconstruct it in computer program and mm-hmm. give an idea of what the face looked like mm-hmm. what kind of resolution do you need to be able to determine those sorts of features compared to what you would be doing for scanning a desktop mm-hmm. object instead
1: so this is more like a forensic question and yes it's true so 3d imaging gets used in all sorts of different areas forensics is one of them and i think what this needs the surface reconstruction of a face is very precise, single measurements of landmarks on the face. So there's an overall skull measurement. But what people do for biomorphology is they take specific points on the face, like cheekbones. I suppose I've not done it. So they take specific predefined measurements that they could also take, for example, with a caliper on the real skull to reconstruct the face. I've not seen a software that does it, but I suppose it's not the overall image that they need, but specific
0: discrete points and measurements and distances to reconstruct the face. So when you've made your scan, you've got this whole stack of data and images to process. What are the steps that you then go through?
1: So let me take the example of photography because it's probably something that we can relate to a little easier. When I image an object, I think about my procedure before I start. So I will have, for example, different viewpoints around the objects in two different heights. And I know these two groups. I can also turn the object around. So I have two positions almost of the object. So these are two groups that need to be brought together. The raw data for photogrammetry gets fed into a software. It first gets color corrected. Let me not forget that. You need to include a scale. You need to include a color chart, the x color chart, for example, to be able to have the correct color. It then goes into a software for position one, for example, that looks through the images automatically and compares the images. So there is a procedure of image matching going on, looking at the brightness and the colors of each image, and these images need to overlap, and to figure out the camera positions around the object to create a point cloud and the proposal for the camera positions. When you have that and you are happy with the results and you are happy with what you see, so it reflects essentially what you've done in reality, two tours around the object from different angles, then you say, yes, that is okay, please go ahead, and the software will compute a surface model, which is often a point cloud. So a point cloud is a number of discrete points in space. So X, Y, Z coordinates, often RGB coordinates in the surface direction. So these point clouds can then be turned into a mesh. So that is a surface model where the dots are connected, essentially. You have a closed surface and it has a color that's kind of added on. If you've got two positions, you have to do this twice. And then you have to, often before you create the mesh, you have to merge these two positions to see top and bottom, for example. And then you create a mesh that is your output. Put for your 3D model. So you get a very dense point cloud, very heavy file size and information. You get the mesh that's usually smaller in point, smaller file size. And then you can also start thinking about, do I want to put it on the web? Are there specific export functions that I need for specific things like 3D printing? If you are 3D printing, you export it as an STL. Also, a 3D printer will stall if your object is a gigabyte big. So you need to kind of reduce it to, I don't know, what, 50 megabytes, megabytes. or start? And um, Well, that's very different for each technology and each software, but they can be as big as like half a gigabyte. And if it's a large object, very intricate surface geometry, and the point cloud is very dense, like every millimeter, every half a millimeter, there's a lot of information. So you could just output it, and you might need to reduce this mesh, output it as STL, which is like a common file format for 3D printing. Or if you wanted to put it up on the web, you output it as OBJ, which is also a common file format that carries the color. Yes. And usually you amass, like folders full of various data variations, because, of course, you should be storing each step to keep traceability of the decisions you've made. It's not all mathematical decisions. You, as a person who is using the software, you're making decisions that might alienate the object from the original raw data, the S built scan or the S is object scan. But if you are like closing holes, if you are sort of in painting colours, you are approximating information about the object that isn't in the reality.
0: So it is very similar to the type of decisions you would make if you were conserving an object. In the real world, you're just doing it on the computer and Mm -hmm. then the advantage is you can save it before and save it after and retrace your steps. It's absolutely powerful. The same as in conservation where it needs to be
1: reversible. I find the same should happen for digital objects objects.
0: And how do you protect against things like file obsolescence, like these files might not necessarily be readable in the future? Do you need to take steps now to try and overcome that? That is a very difficult topic. There are a series of file formats
1: that seem to prevail throughout the last decade that I've been working with these things. There is a human readable format which is ASCII that's also huge in output. So that's really lines of coordinates and information about the colour. That is something that you might be able to input into whatever software you have. But it is true that softwares are being discontinued and you can then only, you know, archive the software version that you have used it with and so you do both. You try to kind of keep a version of the software somewhere near your files and you, you export it in common file formats and you hopefully do some sort of an indexing to see, you know, where are the files, do some data preservation. And to find a way of annotating all these, I don't know what, 20 files until you get to the one that you upload somewhere is very difficult. So the metadata structure is very difficult. So there are movements towards making this clearer and having vaults to archive these things that are automatically extracting data from the 3D models, but it's still a research area.
0: Where do these get stored at the moment? Is it in the cloud? or on a hard drive? It's a good question because if you're
1: a museum and you want to keep the copyright, you don't want to store them in the cloud. You hopefully have a secure server with a backup every night that is storing them somewhere, but this is challenging for museums, very challenging. And I have been working with big museums and uh, very often they just leave the data with me because they have no space to store it. So at the moment, some things are on the research data server here at UCL to keep large data and I've got, I think, four terabytes worth of space and two of which are already occupied with legacy data. It's a lot of data, two, yes.
0: two terabytes, wow. And so where do you see this going in the future?
1: I mean, we can certainly be easily teleported to places if we're putting on a headset, for example. So we can put on this cheap cardboard solution and put in headphones. So we are already in a virtual world. The only thing you need to do is kind of keep it there or have a strap around your head. So that's the cheapest version with your own phone. Then there are professional solutions where you have a bigger technical thing. And you still have to hold something in your hands to navigate within these worlds. So, I mean, the HTC Vive is getting pretty close to what you would see as an immersion because you put on your headphone, you put on your goggles, you have the reverb in different spaces. You can model the reverb of the sound and really very much transports you to places. And you can navigate by using these hands controllers, you're clicking, you're still clicking. So where I think it's going or should be going is to have some intuitive navigation so you could kind of grab something with your hand and you would actually grab it in your virtual world and bring it closer to your eye and look at it. So a more intuitive immersion of all this and I think these sensors are just coming up. I think this is all quite in development right now. So certainly your virtual reality immersion into a different space and and where you bring together a landscape. I think you said this earlier and I think for example a three scan of a landscape as it is now and then maybe change into a computer generated image of what it was then in connection with these objects that you find sort of in the museum in a case but in context of their original now and then appearance would be nice it's all very exciting so maybe also chamber you could put in some smell right I mean there are haptic interfaces like gloves but I think I'd like it to be just the hands
0: Oh, it sounds amazing. I can't wait to see what the future holds for this technology. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. But thank you very much, Mona. It's been absolutely fascinating. The Heritage Science Podcast is brought to you by the EPSRC Centre for Doctoral Training in Science and Engineering in Arts, Heritage and Archaeology, produced in collaboration with the University College London's Digital Media Department. If you have any comments or suggestions about the show, contact us via Twitter at seehercdt, that's S-E-A-H-A-C-D-T, or using the hashtag HSPodcast. Alternatively, please email us using the address seeher-manager at ucl.ac.uk or through the website www.seeher-cdt.ac.uk.